What is up? How are we doing tonight? So I had, a, I had a really special moment. You guys were outside. I think some sort of eggnog thing happened. And I'm just sitting in there, you know, just kind of getting my mind ready for tonight. And then Stephen comes in and he's like, hey, Nate. And then he jumps in the bathroom. And the next thing I hear is, Ugh! and I'm like, what is happening? And then, I kid you not, he opens the door. He's like, I just drank a bunch of eggnog. <laughs> and like, just back and forth. Like, I don't know how you laugh and then throw up and then laugh. I, it, it's a special moment, y'all. It's a special moment, but that must mean it is fall retreat. <laughs> Steven is a legend in my mind or something. All right. Well, hey. My name's Nate. Uh, a little bit about me. Here's a picture of my family. And uh, you, you see, I've got a lot of kids. There's, there's seven of us. I heard a joke recently that I think is, is a lot of truth from a comedian who had a bunch of kids. And he said, you know what having four kids is like, five kids is like? It's like you're drowning and, and someone throws you a baby. I'm like, yes, I can, I can relate to that. that that's true. Um, but there is my family, and uh, the, the youngest is Colby. Uh, he's eight. And then we got Nora and Eliza in the middle, and then our two oldest boys. Um, they are 20 and 21, Des and Gary, and uh, they're incredible. Came to be a part of our family uh, four years ago. And then right there in the middle, you see the glue of the family, my wife, um, Name is Kristen. She is just phenomenal. The amount of things that she does to hold our family together. She is the glue. She is the wisdom. She is the holder of the schedule. She is the boss. And it is just a joy to get to do life with her. And I want you guys to, uh, just, just to think for a moment. I want you to think for a moment about a, a time in your life where something happened that you look back or maybe you even saw in that moment, wow, from here on out, everything is different. I can't believe that is true, but it is. And now everything is different. Well, I had one of those moments at my wedding day. My wife and I stood, behind, uh, stood in front of God and family and friends. And we got a chance to have this moment where we had our vows together. This is right after we, you know, had our ceremony. And uh, my, my wife, she just looked gorgeous. And I, I just looked 12. Um, apparently, you know, the Roman haircut was really cool back then or, or something, classic, right? And what's funny about that is uh, that's, those are champagne glasses that had sparkling grape juice or sparkling something, not grape juice, I don't know. But because I was only 20, and so we couldn't even have anything to drink at our wedding. Now, our wife, my, my wife, our wife, my wife was 22. And um, what was really cool about going on a honeymoon when you're 20 and 22, if any of you guys are planning to get married, you're 20, remember this, you can't rent a car. And so on our honeymoon in Aruba, we got to rent a moped, okay? Living the dream. But anyways, on our wedding day, we got to commit to each other before Christ, to love each other as Christ has loved us through his power. And I'll never forget the moment. Looking my wife in the eyes, well, she made those commitments to love me for a lifetime. I'll never forget seeing her and understanding that now something supernatural and mysterious was happening. Two were becoming one in this beautiful thing called marriage that God had given us as a gift. And I know it's cliche, but I'll say it's true that after 17 years of being married, you know how they say you'll love more, each other more every day? Well, I have experienced that through her because the truth is those words that she said, she is backed up 
over and over and over again with her actions. She has loved me with a beautiful love that God has inspired her to love me with. And the actions, they've spoken even louder than her words. And you know, it's amazing to think how much love can impact our lives. When you start to think about how every single one of us wants to be loved, we want to be embraced, we want to know that we're home. We want to be encouraged, supported, challenged, picked up when we fall down. It's why we search for it. It's why our world is obsessed with the pursuit of love. And yet, let's be honest, it's really hard to find that kind of deep love. The love of another, like Kristen's love for me, it's truly incredible. But can I just tell you something? It is just a small taste of a love that is so much greater, of a love from the Father that is so incredible, no words can fully capture it. So here's my prayer tonight. My prayer is that every single one of us, as we dwell on what the love of God is like, that tonight we would have one of those moments where we just go, I can't believe this is true. But it is. And everything is different. You know, one of the disciples, John, he referred to himself as, hey, I'm the one Jesus loves. I'm the disciple Jesus loves. And you can imagine what the other disciples are like, bro, chill out, man, okay? What's wrong with you? But he was so deeply impacted by the love of the Father, by the love of Jesus, that when you hear him referring to himself, he's just like, I'm the one Jesus loves. And I know that the heartbeat that he has for us this weekend, if he was here, as we read through 1 John, if you want to open your Bibles, you can. We'll be in 1 John, verse, starting in chapter 3 tonight. But I know that his greatest desire is that every single one of us would be able to walk around with that kind of confidence and say, I'm the one Jesus loves. And so we're going to be talking about this central earth-shattering truth that he writes there right at the beginning of chapter 3 that we're just going to let sit in our hearts and blow our minds tonight. So if you guys are with me, right there in 1 John 3, 1, it says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Tonight, we are going to dive through deep into this great love that the Father has lavished on us. And lavished is such an amazing word. Lavish is, is about this profuse, extravagant, generous love without restraint that is just poured out on us. It's something that John saw. It's something he experienced. It's something he desperately wants you to know about how God said it, and then how God backed it up with his actions through Jesus. And so tonight, I want you to understand what Jesus has done for you so that you can run to him in his overflowing love, knowing that you are his child. Because here's the fact. The Father's lavish love will transform your life if you truly understand it and take it into your heart. Now, y'all, one of my favorite things every day is when I get home from work, and my eight-year-old, Colby, when he hears that I'm home, it doesn't matter where he is. He just yells, Dad! And wherever he is, he just starts to beeline for me. And I know 
that I better put my stuff down. I know that I better be ready because he is coming to launch himself at me so that I can catch him and give him a hug. Like, that's just what he wants to do as soon as he sees me. And there is something so pure and so incredible that as he comes into my arms and we just have this hug, this embrace that I, I can't describe for you. It is truly incredible. See, Colby knows at his core that he is my son. He knows that I love him as his dad. He knows he doesn't have to hesitate to jump into my arms. And I think if you guys could help me out this weekend, I think somewhere on me is, is a sign that says climb on me because I literally cannot get him to stop. I mean, it's ridiculous. But there's just this comfort level. There's this depth. There's this confidence that he has. My friends, we are to have that kind of relationship with God. A kind of confidence that we can run and jump into the Almighty's arms and experience freedom and joy an overflowing love that comes out of that relationship. But how? I mean, I've been a Christian since I was six, when I gave my life to Christ. And yet I will tell you that for much of my walk with God, I rarely felt that kind of closeness, that kind of confidence, that kind of intimacy that John is clearly writing that we're supposed to have. And I would imagine you might feel the same way. That tonight you feel a distance from God. You feel like you're at arm's length from God. For whatever reason, we sing those songs, but you're like, I don't really feel near to God. You've never felt that kind of intimacy, that kind of confidence, that kind of depth that we sing about or John's writing about. And here's, I think, at the root of that. Many of us have never really stopped to see how lavish God's love is for us. So let's dive in deep. Let's investigate what John's statement here is about this truly great love that's been lavished on us. And here's where we got to start. Understanding the lavish love of the Father all starts with how you see Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? See, John is writing this letter to make sure we don't miss who Jesus is. Because the people of his day, these small house churches that he's writing to, he wants them to remember Jesus at the core, the root of what makes our faith our faith. And many had become confused. See, there was a lie that many people were starting to tell that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God. Jesus wasn't really the promised Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. And so John, he's not about that. And from the moment go, flipping back to verse, chapter 1, verse 1, he's, he's going to say, that's not going to work for me. So if you guys will flip back, to chapter 1, we're going to kind of take a panoramic view of 1 John before we dive in deep in the next two days. But here's what he says. In 1 John 1, starting with verse 1, oh, this is good. That which was from the beginning, in other words, what was eternal, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of Life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. It's a part of the body of Christ. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Now, these are very poetic words, words that you could spend a lifetime dwelling on and drawing from. But what is he getting at here? Look again at those first few verses. He's saying that Jesus is God. That Jesus is from the beginning. That Jesus is the eternal one. He is life itself. He is one with God the Father. He is the Christ. Now I know that may not mean all that much to you. Hearing the word Christ and Messiah were words that I really didn't know much about for a long time. But the reality is for the listeners in that day, that word was like a hyperlink that had all this meaning, that tied all of the scriptures together in the story of God. And so tonight, I want to make sure it's so clear to you that when you read Jesus Christ or when you hear that he's the Messiah, what does that mean? And I couldn't find a better way of doing that than that showing you one of the theme videos from the Bible Project on the Messiah. So let's go ahead and let's watch that. So next time you hear the word Messiah, next time you hear the word Christ, I want you to understand these profound things that all the Bible is drawing together in that moment. Truly, the Word of God is unbelievable when you plumb the depths of what it shows us. So John is really clear. Jesus is God. He is the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world who has crushed the power that sin and death has on us because he's died and risen from the dead. So we start to see what this great lavish love is about when we understand that Jesus, who is God, left heaven, left perfection, left comfort to walk among us, his broken creation. The Apostle Paul understood this reality and it led him to, read, uh, to, to write some profound words when he realized what Jesus had done. In Philippians 2, 5 through 7, he says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he wasn't holding on to his comfort and his glory. No, what did he do? He made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. There it is. A beautiful, breathtaking clarity. Jesus, who is God, demonstrates the lavish love of God by making himself nothing for you, by becoming a servant for you, by walking in our shoes, by becoming human. I mean, who do you know that is willing to become nothing for you, to serve you? to empathize so deeply with your struggles. And to think it's our creator who comes to serve his creation. And that's exactly who God is. That's what he does for us. That's what his love is about. That's why he can say in Hebrews 4 that we can approach the very throne of God with confidence. And we can ask God for the grace and mercy we need. Why? because of Jesus' love and sacrifice for us. He can empathize with all of your weaknesses, all of your temptations, because he walked in our shoes, although it was without sin. Truly, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. But it goes on. Look at Philippians 2.8. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So God in human appearance humbles himself to a place where he's willing to die for his creation. And even die 
on a cross. Y'all, for me, I got to admit that so often I hear about Jesus dying on the cross. And I'm so nonchalant about that. It, it, it comes across as just this word. But there's so much going on. And when we lose sight of the magnitude of the cross, we lose sight of the greatness of God and his love. Too often we fail to really understand what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. We fail to fully embrace what it means that Jesus laid down his glory in heaven to experience unimaginable suffering on the cross. But I want to pause for a moment and just reflect on that. We need to think first about the physical suffering. That God came and had a crown of thorns driven into his head. Was then whipped in his back. Bare. And then had to carry his own cross up a hill where then he was laid down and nailed hands and feet to a tree and brought up to a place where then he had to hang, bleeding out, pushing himself up just to even be able to take a breath so that he doesn't suffocate until he died. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. And then you think about how it was mental and emotional and relational suffering as Jesus was dealing with hours of torture as he was on the cross seeing his mother watch him die seeing his disciples distraught many of them abandoning him and on top of all that he's got all these people cussing him out spitting on him insulting him saying well why don't you just pull yourself off this cross Jesus don't you have this power when the only reason he was staying on the cross was for them and for us. The anguish. But greater than all that is the spiritual suffering. Y'all, him and, him and the Father and the Spirit had been one for all of eternity. And then in this moment on the cross, as he takes all of the crushing weight of our sin upon his shoulders, as he feels the full brunt of our evil, the Father has to turn away. And for the first time, God the Father and God the Son are separated. I don't even understand how that works, but he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine the darkness? Can you imagine the pierced soul? As Jesus abandons himself and chooses to humble himself to go to hell itself and being separated from God. For you, for me, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Why? Why would he do this? Well, in 1 John 2, 2, it says very clearly, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John just has this way of, in a sentence, capturing things that shift all of eternity. And so when he writes, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sins, we see God's justice and love come together in vivid reality. 
Now, John has pointed to this truth that we have to accept if we're going to understand God's love. And it's first that there is a reality in our world. It's called evil. It's called sin. And sin and evil deserve punishment. They must be atoned for. And if we're honest, we understand that none of us are perfect so very far from it. That each one of us have taken part in sin. And what is sin? We saw it on that video. Sin is saying, I trust me over you, God. I want to define what's right and wrong. I want to do whatever makes me happy, whatever I want to do, no matter what the consequences. That is sin because all God wants for us is good and we walk away from that. In our selfish ambition, in our pride, in our destructive words and actions. And John's pretty clear. He says in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so human history is riddled with story after story of broken humanity tearing apart our world. And that's why it says in Romans, the wages of that sin is death. Why? Because God is a perfect God that must punish evil. And I know that we're not super comfortable with that in our world today. No, no, no. God just needs to love me and do whatever I want. I don't want a judgmental God. But no, you don't want that kind of God. Can we be honest enough to realize we don't really want a God that does not get angry when evil destroys the people he created? The world he created? I would be an evil father. I would be a terrible father if I did not get angry and step in if someone was trying to hurt or kill one of my children. You would question my sanity as a father if I didn't. Isn't it loving to be angry that's something that is destroying somebody we love. And so in a world of evil and genocide and injustice, wouldn't it be true that a loving God would be angry and be just in punishing evil? And that's why God declares over and over again, he's infinitely just and doesn't let sin go unpunished. Yet how in the same breath can we read what John wrote about the great love of God that wants to forgive us and make us his child. It seems like such a contradiction. I mean, we either think God is perfectly just and he will only love people who obey him, which is nobody, or he's perfectly loving and will overlook a lot of sin that should really be punished. Yet his justice and love are not in opposition. They are both a part of his goodness. He is infinitely good because he is both endlessly loving and perfectly just. Do you know how? Through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Just listen to this quote by Tim Keller that brings it together. It says, if Jesus Christ died on, our, on the cross for our sins, that's how God can be infinitely just. Because all sin was punished there. And it's how God can be infinitely loving because he took the sin, the punishment onto himself on the cross. The justice of God exacted full punishment for sin and in the same moment provided free salvation to all who believe. On the cross, both the justice and the love of God come together, have their way and shine out brilliantly. If you want to understand the love of God, you have to realize this truth that we deserve nothing but condemnation because of our sin. And we're all guilty. That we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves because we will never be perfect. And yet, God saved us despite our sin at infinite cost to himself. 
That's the lavish love of God that is demonstrated on the, on the cross that makes it clear that if you are a hundred times worse, a million times worse, that you here are in this moment, that your sin is no match for the mercy of God. So in short, Jesus' atoning sacrifice bears God's wrath so that we can receive God's mercy. Jesus took the wrath so we could receive the mercy. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that he would die on a cross so that we could be transformed and a door could be opened, that our identity be completely changed for all of eternity as children of God. And that's why John can't help himself. That later on in 1 John 4, 10, he says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that God, he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. When you and I were enemies of God, when you and I rejected and hated him and took advantage of the life and the world that he gave us, he sent his son to take our sin so he could give us his perfection. This is love. Love that would do whatever it can to adopt you into the family of God. You know, I meet a a lot of people who are just hurting deeply, asking the question, does anyone love me? They've been abused, abandoned, betrayed, lied to, mistreated, and deeply wounded. And you may be in that boat tonight where you can barely ask the question, but you feel it so deeply. Does anyone love me? Will I ever be loved? And the good news is the gospel Jesus provides a resounding yes to those questions. You will be loved and will always be loved by the God who is love, who wants to shower you, deluge you with his love. And how do we know? He sent his son, Jesus. So my prayer is that you're beginning to tremble, just realizing all that God would do to adopt you into his family. You know, adoption is a, a big part of my family's story. My younger brother's adopted. Our two oldest sons are adopted. And if you want to get lost in a world of heartwarming moments, just get on YouTube and search adoption stories and just get ready to cry, okay? It's just the way it is. One in particular that really grabbed my heart was Ivy's story. See, Ivy and her young sibling, Kai, were split up at a young age in the foster system when their home fell apart. And Ivy was with one foster family, and Kai was placed in the care of the Zazulka family, who were new to foster care. Literally finished their training the next day they got Kai. It was kind of a whirlwind. But thankfully, the foster families lived close, and so they're able to get together and allow the kids to play. And the more time that the Zazulka family spent with Ivy and Kai, the more they were drawn to them. And quickly, Ivy felt at home with them. And Ivy would look at them and say, can this be my forever home? She'd say, can I call you mom and dad? And the Suzuko family felt that same deep connection and decided, we're going to change our entire lives. We're going to sacrifice whatever it takes. We're going to do whatever we need to do to fight to become their parents. And so for months they fought. And then they finally got an answer. And then on Ivy's birthday, they got to give her a gift. You guys want to see it? 
I want to see it. Let's watch this. Right? What a beautiful moment. I I mean, her authentic, just in-the-moment response. Why? Because she knew her whole life was going to be different. She'd have to wonder where home was. She'd have to wonder who her parents were. She didn't have to wonder what's next for her and her brother. She knew she was home, and they were doing whatever it took to change their life, to welcome her home, and it completely changed her life. And what I need you to understand tonight is that God has provided a way for you to have your forever home, that you don't ever have to wonder again if you're loved. You don't ever have to wonder again if you're secure. You don't ever have to wonder again about anything in your life because Jesus is taking care of it. Would you just let him in? Would you just let him adopt you? Would you just take off all the walls that you put up and just say, God, love me. I trust you. I want to come home to you. And John writes, and the other John, John 1, 12, yet to those who received him and to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. receive it. He says, come home. You once were slaves to sin and death. Now you're my child. You're born of God. And then John just can't help himself. All throughout the book of 1 John that I hope that you will pour yourself through. We discover this love without restraint that as children of God, we are brought out of light, brought out of darkness into light. We are forgiven and cleansed of all sin. We are anointed to abide in God. We are led by God's truth. We are becoming like Christ. We have Jesus as our advocate. We have confidence in approaching God that he will hear us and provide what we need. We have overcome spiritual enemies in Jesus. We have eternal life. And the list goes on and on and on. And here's what's mind-blowing. Every single one of those, you could spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of what difference it makes. So tonight, If you're here and you're wondering, does anyone love you? The answer is yes. And if you don't have a relationship with God, if you're not sure if you've received him yet, I I want you tonight just to tell your connection group when you get done tonight, I just want you to ask the connection group leader, what would that look like? Ask them what it's done to them, how it's changed their life to be a child of God and just take all that in and ask the question tonight, do you want to move from death to life becoming a child of God? Because here's the beautiful thing about being a child of God. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It's a gift that's given us, meaning we don't have to fear ever losing it. That's the thing about things in this world. We can lose them all the time, and yet with Jesus, with God, we'll never lose it because it's not based on what you've done. It's based on what Jesus already did, period, end of story. So ultimately, being God's child brings this beautiful self-awareness, a humble confidence that leaves no place for an inferiority or superiority complex. I mean, just think about it. Being a child of God fosters humility. Why? Because I know it was a gift given to me. And so there's no room for arrogance. Instead, I come to this place of dependence on God, thankfulness and gratitude. I come to this place where I know I need his direction for every single part of my life, no matter what. And it also means that I can't look down on anybody else. Because every single person I meet, God has offered them the same love. He says, that's a person I loved. That's a person I created. That's a person Jesus died for. That's a person I want to become my child. And so it humbles me to 
to love all people. But secondly, being a child of God fosters such security and certainty. I love that John is so clear. We are children of God. And then he says, and that is what you are. Two exclamation points. The only ones in the entire book. I love this deep sense of security that you no longer have to worry about. Does my past define me? Because it doesn't. Because you're a child of God and you're forgiven. You don't have to worry about what am I going to do in the present? Because you are a child of God. He is with you. You don't have to worry about, well, what about my future? Because the worst thing that can happen to you here on earth is losing your life. But guess what? That just gives way to eternal life in Jesus. So you have nothing to fear. You are completely secure. So I want to ask you tonight, if you're a follower of Christ, where are you putting your identity? The truth is, I meet far too many Christians that have a really shallow identity. You know you're a child of God. Like, I knew I was a child of God, but the truth is, you don't live out of that identity. No, no, you chase after the things of this world. You chase after approval or success or power or comfort or control. You try to build your worth of what people say. You try to find your security and your accomplishments, and your life is in shambles because of it. But what if you lived out of your identity with God? That when you woke up in the morning and you looked yourself in the mirror, you laid aside self-hatred because you can't hate what God created and what he has done to make you in his image. And so you step into, I'm a child of God. I need to learn to embrace my unbelievable value in Jesus. What if in those moments where you walk out in the world and inevitably you get rejected or you find yourself in a difficult situation, what if you found yourself, I'm secure in the love of God, and so even though this person is rejecting me, it doesn't change who I am. And so I can love them, no strings attached, because Jesus loved me even when I was his enemy. What if when those fights arise, those political polarizing things we find ourselves in, if you remembered you're a child of God and that you're going to live with love and peace and understanding, honoring even those who are supposedly your enemies because we know in Christ there are no enemies. And we choose to speak the truth and love. Y'all, what if you lived out of that identity? Woke up every morning and said, God, teach me how to live out of this identity. Teach me to embrace that I'm a child of God and respond to everything out of that perspective. Everything will change if you do. If you choose to allow Jesus, who is God on earth, if you trust his perspective, trust his love that will never change, you will discover a life that's truly worth living. Over the next couple sessions, we're gonna unpack what it looks like to live as his children when God is light and God is love. But here's the bottom line tonight, is that you will experience the lavish love of the Father when you embrace Jesus as God understanding his atoning sacrifice and joyfully receive your adoption as a child of God. Y'all, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Father, we pray now that as we go to our conversations that whatever you stirred up in us, that we would not keep it inside, but instead we would boldly share it, allowing you to continue this work that you started and helping us understand the infinite love of the Father. And I pray, God, that if there's someone in the room today that's never had that moment to give their life to you, to trust you, to choose you, because you've chosen them first, I pray that they'd be courageous. I pray that they would decide tonight to never again wonder if they're loved, to never again wonder where their home is, to never again allow anything to stand in the way of their relationship with you. 
that they would accept the fact that even though they've screwed everything up just like I did, you came and you died and you rose again so you wouldn't have to live without them. So God, I pray that they'd be strong and courageous to take hold of life and to live in your ridiculous love. We love you, Jesus.